So I had an interesting encounter about a week and a half ago at Vanderbilt Bookstore. Uh, I went by there to pick up a book for a friend who was in the hospital, and I uh, went in and I rode the escalator up. I ran into a colleague who teaches in the Divinity School. We talked for a few minutes, and I made my way down to the religion aisle, which is where I spend most of my time in bookstores whenever I'm there. And I was looking at the books, and uh, all of a sudden, they a kind of nervous-looking guy came walking down around the corner onto the aisle, and he was gripping his Bible really tight. And, um, and so I, I went down to the end, and I looked down at him, and he didn't really say anything. And I just said, hi, how are you? And he didn't really say anything. He kept gripping that Bible, and he looked at me, and he said, do you know him? And uh, assuming he was talking about Jesus, I said, are you talking about Jesus? Yes. I said, I know him. And, um, and then he said, does he know you? I said, you know, that's a good question, one that Jesus would have to answer. It's not one that I can answer for you. And um, I was starting to get a little bit weirded out at this point in time. <laughs> and so I went back to looking for the book, and, and, uh, and all of a sudden he looked back at me and said, you know he's coming back. And I said, yes, I've heard of that. <laughs> and at this point, I just wanted to play along with this guy. I said, do you know when? <laughs> And he said, yes. He goes, it's going to be soon, probably 15 to 25 years. I was like, good. All right, so that's good to know. And uh, then he looked at me and he said, are you ready? And at, at this point, I was like, all right, I'm all in. I said, I'm ready. Are you ready? <laughs> and he said, oh, yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready. Well, about this time, I figured it was time to wind down my book search. I was ready to leave. And um, so I went downstairs I paid for my book, and I looked over my shoulder, and here comes my buddy down the escalator holding his Bible, staring right at me. And um, I was like, all right. So I waited for him to leave first, <laughs> counted to 100, um, and then I left. It was one of those encounters that is just bizarre, right? But I kept thinking about one question that he asked me. The question was, do you know him? Because I think that's the question that John is after in his gospel. Do you know him? Not have you heard of him? Not do you know about him? Not do you believe in him? But do you know him? And, and does he make a difference in your life? I think those are questions that need to be on the table as we continue studying John's gospel. Today we're in chapter 5. We've been moving along pretty slowly because John's gospel is dense. There's so much in it. It's, it's, you, you can't move very fast. Um, but we're told that there's a festival going on in Jerusalem, and Jesus goes there. And by the Sheep Gate, there is a pool called Bethzatha, which has five porticos. And, and at this pool, there are many people uh, who are there who want to be healed. And so at this pool, you would find the blind and the lame, and the paralyzed, and all kinds of people seeking to be healed. But there is this one man who John tells us has been sick for 38 years. Not necessarily has he been at the pool for 38 years, but he's been sick for 38 years. Um, he doesn't necessarily, uh, he's probably a regular there, people have probably seen him, but, but, but he's been sick for a really long time. And the belief in that day, picture this, it's like a hot spring. The water would bubble up from the bottom and would move the pool. And people believed that when that happened, the angels were at work and you could be healed. 
And that's why all the sick people would come to this pool because they believed that the, the water had magic powers. The angels were at work and you could be healed. So John tells us it's the Sabbath day and Jesus encounters this man by the pool. And, and realizing that the man had been there for quite some time, Jesus asks him a profound question. Do you want to be made well? And the man answers him, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am making my way, someone else steps down ahead of me. And upon hearing this, Jesus says, stand up, take up your mat and walk. And John tells us that at once the man did what he was asked and he was made well. Without even going into the pool, he was made well. He stood up, he took up his mat and he walked. Now, the passage continues and tells us that this man went to the temple, and everybody who had been uh, to the pool had seen him lying there, crippled, uh, paralyzed, whatever he was, we don't know exactly from the text, and they saw that he had been made well, and he was walking, and he was carrying his mat, which was prohibited on the Sabbath day. So the Pharisees asked him, who told you to take up your mat and walk? And the man wasn't sure because Jesus had disappeared into the crowd. But he then encounters Jesus in the temple and Jesus says, See, you have been made well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. And the man then went away and he told the Jews that it was Jesus who told him to pick up his mat and walk. It was Jesus who told him to break the command on the Sabbath. He kind of throws Jesus under the bus. And, 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 and so basically they get angry and they start persecuting Jesus. And he responds by saying, my father is still working, but I am also working. And this angered them even more because he's basically saying, God is my father. And they were suspicious and they were skeptical of Jesus starting at this point in the gospel. Now, Fred Craddock was a legendary preacher. In fact, he, uh, one of the best our denomination has ever had, preached one of his final sermons from this pulpit in 2011, and it's worth listening to. You can, you can go to YouTube and see it. It was called Jesus Saves. But Craddock was a New Testament professor at Emory Candler School of Theology. He was a, a, a named one of the top 10 preachers in the English-speaking world uh, by Newsweek magazine at one point. He was a, a friend and a mentor of mine, an amazing person. But, but Craddock talks about this particular story, and he points out that there's not one word in this passage about the sick man's faith, not one hint that he believed in Jesus or anything else except he believed in the magic of the stirring water in the pool. And if we read just a little bit further, we find out that he wasn't even grateful for being healed. In fact, when the religious authorities asked him, uh, why are you carrying your mat? Why are you walking? Who healed you? He said, I don't know, because he didn't know it was Jesus. Jesus broke the Sabbath law, not me, he basically said. But who was this man that Jesus healed by the poolside? Who was he? Fred Craddock says he was a real bum. That's who he was. He had no gratitude, no faith, no humility, and no guts. He didn't deserve to be healed. He didn't deserve anything. That's who Jesus healed, an outcast who lived on the edges of society, a man who had been on the welfare rolls for 38 years. The man Jesus healed was one of those poor people who usually remained outsiders, strangers to be pitied or despised, helped or punished, ignored or studied, but rarely accepted on the same terms as the rest of us. 
Those were the people that were lying around the pool hoping for a miracle. This is the kind of person that Jesus healed. And the man wasn't even grateful. There's one question that is central to this passage that I want to lift up to you this morning. And it's the question that Jesus asks this man, do you want to be made well? And I think it's the question that he continues to ask every single one of us. Because if you think about it, there are so many circumstances in our lives where we may need to change, where we may need to do something different, but first, we have to want to change. We have to want to be made well. What do I mean by that? Well, consider these things. Are you tired of being irritable and angry and resentful over something that happened in your past? Do you want to be made well? Are you tired of holding on to a grudge because somebody has done you wrong or treated you poorly? Do you want to be made well? Is your marriage stale? Is it stagnant? Is it dull? Are you and your spouse simply coexisting, raising children, never making time for each other? Do you want to be made well? Are you sick of drinking too much? You know you should probably cut back a little bit, but for whatever reason, you can't seem to stop. Starts out with a couple glasses of wine, turns into a bottle. Next thing you know, you've had too much. You make dumb decisions. You feel bad the next day. Do you want to be made well? Maybe you're sick of financial stress in your family. You keep spending outside of your means and you borrow money to buy things that you really can't afford to, to keep up with everybody else. Do you want to be made well? Are you sick of not having any friends? Maybe you feel lonely as though nobody really cares about you, nobody understands you, nobody really gets you. Have you thought about trying to go out and intentionally be a friend to somebody else? Do you want to be made well? Are you sick and tired of the polarization in our country? Are you tired of politics ruining friendships and family relationships? Are you confused as to why there is so much anger and fear in our culture? Why can people not just be civil to each other? Do you want to be a part of the solution? Do you want our country, our nation to be made well so that we can begin to treat each other with respect and civility again? Maybe you're just exhausted because you take on too much. Maybe you're a people pleaser and you, you have a hard time saying no to anybody or anything, but you know that you've got to cut back and prioritize in life. You know you can't keep doing it all. Do you want to be made well? This is the question that Jesus asked the man at the pool in Jerusalem, and I think it's the question that he still asks us today. Do you want to be made well? Do you want to change your life or something about your life so that you don't keep doing the same old thing and the same old habits over and over and over again? Well, guess what? You can. And if you're a Christian, then you have to believe that Jesus can help you do that. But first, any of us, all of us, must make up our mind that we want to be better, we want to get better, and we want to actually make some changes. The staff, I have the staff read books, and then we talk about them. Some of the books they like, some of the books 
uh, I know they don't like because they quit reading them, and then they just try to pretend like they've read them. But this one book we've been reading is actually really interesting, and it's called The Happiness Advantage by a Harvard professor named Sean Aker, A-C-H-O-R. And um, basically what, what he talks about in the book is he says, we've got this happiness thing all wrong. He says, most of us think that in life that we need to work hard so that we'll have some success and then we'll be happy. But he says that actually never works. He says, what we need to do is find happiness in our lives right now, wherever we are, whatever we're doing, then we need to work hard and then we'll have success and then we can experience even more happiness. So Aker says we don't need to fall victim to that I'll be happy when mindset that human beings often do. That I'll be happy when I go to college. I'll be happy when I get a job. I'll be happy when I'm making more money. I'll be happy when I get married. Uh, I'll be happy when I have children. I'll be happy once my children grow up and leave the house. Uh, I'll be happy when I retire. We all do that. I'll be happy when. But what Aker says is if you're not happy right now, if you haven't found a, a, a peace of mind, a peace of heart where you are right now, chances are whenever you get to where you want to go, you're not going to be happy then either. He says, no, find your happiness, find your meaning right now, and that will open the door to many more possibilities that will lead to even more happiness down the road. And so what he does in this book, and I find this book so relevant to this question that Jesus asked, do you want to be made well? He gives seven principles for how we can reset our happiness set point in life. And I'm going to leave you with three of them. The first principle he shares is called the happiness advantage. And he says, positive brains have a biological advantage over brains that are neutral or negative. So basically, this principle teaches us how to retrain our brains to capitalize on positivity and improve our productivity and our performance. So what he says is that there are specific things that you can do in your life, starting today, starting tomorrow, to reset your happiness set point. What are those things? Meditation and prayer. Take just five minutes to be still, to be quiet, to read scripture, to reflect, to pray. Find something to look forward to. Perhaps the most enjoyable part of an activity or a trip is the anticipation. So plan something, an outing, a trip, a family activity, something you will enjoy. Commit conscious acts of kindness. Go out of your way to help somebody, either somebody you know or a perfect stranger. And, uh, and that will make a big difference in their life and in yours. He says, infuse positivity into your surroundings. Compliment something. Encourage somebody. Don't just be negative and cynical. Nobody wants to be around a negative, cynical person all the time. They suck the energy out of life. Exercise. There's always been a physiological connection between your mental and your physical health. So just going for walks makes a difference. And then he says, spend money, but not on stuff. Spend it on experiences. Spend it on trips and outings with your family and your spouse, things that you will enjoy because they will be meaningful. If you can do these things, he says, you will reset your happiness set point. And it doesn't mean you'll be happy all the time, but you'll definitely get to a better place mentally and emotionally. The next principle, and I love this one, he says, fall up. In the midst of defeat, stress, and crisis, our brains map different paths to help us cope. And this principle is not only about finding the mental path that leads us up and out of failure or suffering, but that teaches us to be happier and more successful because of it. So in other words, when you reach a dead end in life, when something happens that you didn't see coming, 
Maybe it's a divorce. Maybe you lose your job. Maybe it's a health crisis. Maybe you've lost a spouse. Use that as motivation to begin a new chapter. Grieve, but don't bask in the misery. Let the experience push you forward into a brighter and healthier future. And he gives some examples of real life. He says, Michael Jordan was cut by his high school basketball coach. Walt Disney, get this, was fired by a newspaper editor for not being creative enough. The Beatles were initially turned down over in England by a record executive. There are all kinds of examples in life where bad things happen, things that we don't see coming, things that we think are dead ends, and he says, fall up. Use it as motivation to catapult you into the next chapter of life. Lastly this morning, the final principle that I want to share with you is called social engagement. In the midst of challenges and stress, some people choose to hunker down and retreat within themselves. But the happiest, the wisest, the most successful people invest in their friends, their peers, and family members to propel them forward. Basically, we are social creatures and we find our meaning from our relationships. You remember Jonathan Haidt's three categories of happiness? Happiness comes from buying things, achievement. It's always short-lived. Happiness comes from within. That's a little bit short-sighted. He says happiness comes from between. It's the networks and the relationships that we have where we find our meaning in life. And so we must cultivate and intentionally develop healthy relationships that are reciprocal where people give back and don't just take all the time. And because we are social beings, meaning in life comes through relationships. And honestly, that's what the church does so well, I think, is in a world where loneliness and social isolation and social media, which is a lame excuse for a relationship on a screen with somebody across the country, that supplements. There is no replacement for face-to-face time spent with the people that you love. And building your social network is a key to finding happiness in life. Do you want to be made well? Do some of these things, Aker says, and you can answer Jesus' question, yes, I do, and here's how I'm going to do it. Jesus raises this question to the man at the pool, and I remain absolutely convinced that he raises the same question to us today, and the decision that we have to make is how are we going to answer it? Because you cannot be made well until you make up your mind that you want to be made well. You cannot change something until you make up your mind that something needs to change. And will we do the necessary things to get to a healthier place, to get to a better place, so that we can be made well? One more thought this morning. There's a lot of talk in this passage about Sabbath. And the man gets in trouble for carrying his mat on the Sabbath. There are all kinds of rules about the Sabbath in the Bible. And here's my concern about today. We don't have any rules about the Sabbath. And one of the reasons why people are not well in our culture is because they never observe the Sabbath. Now, this is interesting. I I work on the Sabbath, so Sunday's not really my Sabbath day. I have another day off. Uh, 
I see the Haslam family. They're in the football business, you know. They have to work on Sundays. All of us have to find a day of the week. Hopefully it's Sunday, maybe it's another day, where we can take the time to rest, uh, to worship, to be with the people that we love, because we have a culture where people are running themselves into the ground. And it's not healthy. And so Sabbath was a big deal back in the first century, and it should be a much bigger deal today if we want to be made well. Amen.